And uh, what I want to announce now is that uh, Keith is going to do this session of the workshop, and then we will break around about 11.30. We're going to try and eat, and we want to come back around 1 o'clock, and then they'll have the rest, and we will be over around about 3.30. The workshop should be in about 3.30. Thank you. I'm going to turn it over to Keith. Thanks, Howard, for that beautiful introduction. <laughs> Hello, everybody. I'm an alcoholic. My name's Keith. By God's grace, Alcoholics Anonymous, a room full of people like you and a little effort on my own. I'm not taking a drink of alcohol, nor have I used any kind of narcotics since May 11th, 1976. And for that, I'm especially grateful. Yeah. Thanks, Alcoholics Anonymous. Very grateful. Uh, Sue and I are doing this uh, set of tapes. Uh, I guess you could say it on on uh, relationships, but it's uh, <clears throat> whatever the taper wants to put on there as a title is what it'll be. But uh, what qualifies us to do this, as you see other tapes and other people and other speakers, is... Uh, uh, there's certain things that qualify Sue and I to be asked to be uh, to speak. Uh, for one thing, uh, when we came to the program back to over 33 years ago, I'd been in and out of Alcoholics Anonymous for a number of years, and uh, there never was any Al-Anon or Alateen or Alley Dog or Alley Cat, nothing. And uh, and I would go to AA, and I'd come home and tell her what was going on in AA, and uh, and she didn't care. She figured I was over there honking and sniffing on the women, uh, even though I couldn't have got a date with a $1,000 bill in each hand. I was so rank. Uh, but then we'd have a fight, and then I'd be drunk again. There was never uh, I was going home to a, a drunk, crazy house, so there was never any recovery. I don't blame that. It's just the way it was. And I can't stay sober in an environment where I drank. The same me will always drink again. The same me will always drink again. And there was no change, even though I went to Alcoholics Anonymous. Plus the fact that I'm a real alcoholic. I'm a type 4 alcoholic. I'm a fifth-generation alcoholic. And... uh, Anytime I ever went to Alcoholics Anonymous or to church or to Zen Buddhism or uh, the Masonic Lodge, I had a chemical in me. So for many, many years, I, I was never chemically free. I was never sober. I always had something in me that kept the phenomena of craving uh, going. See, here people say, I came today and I didn't. I didn't uh, stay sober. Well, you probably never sobered up either. You probably never detoxed. And I never detoxed. I had so much stuff in me for so many years that the phenomena of craving was never lifted. It seemed like I tried, but I always had something in me that, that made the phenomena of craving uh, rejuvenate itself. And uh, so I didn't stay sober. And finally, when I did get sober, they put me in a detox, and they kept me in a detox and detoxed me. Completely detoxed me. It wasn't a treatment center. It was a detox. They lo- throwed me in there, and uh, and they gave me nothing but bananas. You need potassium. Eat a banana. And... Uh, People around knew me and seen me come and go and come and go. But I, I detoxed. <clears throat> that detox was a, a brand new detox. And uh, ironically, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. And uh, my doctor in that detox was Dr. Paul Oliger, uh, who is uh, in a, uh, the big stories in a big book, Dr. Addict Alcoholic. And he was my doctor. He had start, he was work. He opened him and another doctor opened this detox. 
The other doctor was named Dr. Zuska, and Dr. Zuska had started and worked in many uh, detox units with the armed services, various groups of armed services to help armed service of the, the military people. He was a non-alcoholic. He loved working with alcoholics and addicts. And he, uh, he and Dr. Paul got together and opened a, a detox, a 40-bed detox in a St. Joseph's Hospital in uh, Orange, California. And I was the first wave to come in, not, not by design. The guy that 12-stepped me couldn't get me in anywhere else. Nobody wanted me. I'd been around and around. And, and these people had just opened this, and I went in. There were 39 of us, 39 people in the first few months of detox. And they slammed me in there, shut the door, and, uh, and I stayed uh, for several months and detoxed. And I don't ever want to detox again. Thank you very much. I just don't want to do that. It's, if there's anything, I remember a lot of experiences of my drinking time, but I remember very vividly my detox, and it was hideous, and it took a long time. It took a long time to be completely detoxed. So I was detoxed. At that same time, Dr. Paul and his wife, Max, who was an Al-Anon, he was my doctor. I was assigned to him, and, and so he found out about my wife, Sue, and my daughter, Simone, and, and he encouraged them, his wife, Max, encouraged them to go to Al-Anon and Alateen. The guy that 12-stepped me, once he got me in the detox, went home and 12-stepped my wife and daughter and said, you need help. You're insane. And the kid is like a wounded animal. And so what happened? They put us, uh, in, threw us into the program. And, and uh, Sue went to Al-Anon. Uh, basically, because she didn't have any other choices. We'd tried everything else. And so it was like, she didn't do it for any other reason other than that it was strongly suggested you need help, and she went. She was sweetly reasonable, like me. We were beat down. We ran out of friends and enemies at the same time. I ran out of running room. And uh, and my daughter was so beat down that they, she just went along. Of course, Alateen is part of Al-Anon, and so when Sue went to Al-Anon, my daughter, our daughter went to Alateen, and she didn't like that, but... She cried and said, I don't want to go to Alateen. And I said, I don't want to go to AA either, but I'm going and you're going. You don't have a choice. She was 12 and a half. And uh, she went. And and she didn't like it for a year or more. And then one day she was in an Alateen meeting and a little girl came in and all beat down like our daughter. And uh, the little girl asked my daughter to be her sponsor. And she lit up like a Roman candle. Boom. And... Uh, she was alive with it. And 33 years later, 32 years later, she still is. She sponsors 20 or 30 women. And, and uh, she's a real pioneer. She moved to Italy and started step studies and women's conferences and eating meetings and speaker meetings and just blazed through there and, and has a, a fantastic uh, uh, family and, and, a, and a program family today. So we started out doing this in the very beginning. In 1976, uh, there were very few families that came to the program together, went to the program together, the AA, Al-Anon, and Alateen, together, and stayed together. And so we would go to meetings, and she would go to Al-Anon, the kid would go to Alateen, and I'd go to AA. And in the very beginning... You know, and my dog went to Alley Dog, and the cat went to Alley Cat. I mean, that's my story. I'm sorry if you had a mess and your family was dead, but mine wasn't. I came here with sick, sick family. Everything. And uh, and so they pushed us in here, and we, we were sweetly reasonable, and we took it. So in the very beginning, I think we had less than six months in the program, and, and we were asked to participate. To, to share our story. The Al-Anon, the Al-Anons, uh, uh, in that particular area of Southern California were, they participated in various conventions and other things and, uh, they would ask our family to speak at an Al-Anon function. AAs didn't want to hear nothing about, they didn't want to hear nothing from the wife and the kid. They were still guilt-ridden, most of them. 
But the Al-Anons would say, we got a family here that's doing something. They're coming in the same car. They're going home in the same car. That's really the message. And so what would we would go share, and we would go share at these. They'd have potlucks and various things. The Al-Anons would, and they'd, them Al-Anons would drag their old drunk husband and their new, new uh, sober alcoholics over there to hear us. And, and I would talk for 50, this was the training that we had. You said, how do you train to do this? You, you need to, if you got 15 men, shut up in 14 and a half. And to get me to shut up in 14 and a half and let my daughter and wife talk, that was a big deal. I'm telling you, people would come up and throw a net over me and jerk me off of here so my wife and daughter could share. And I would talk about what it used to be like, drunk along, because I was new and that's all I knew. And my daughter would talk about what happened, which was the 12-step call on our whole family. And then Sue would talk. She was the Al-Anon, and she didn't have any fear about working the steps. She, fear was a, she didn't know what it was. So she wasn't afraid to do the steps. She blazed right through the steps and all that stuff first. She set the pace. I'm a, I'm a fearful alcoholic once I sober up. I don't know. I can't do that four-step if anybody finds out what my four-step, they'll lock me up forever. My excuse, I wasn't that big of a deal, but I thought I was. And she blazed through the steps, and so she could talk about steps. So when we shared as a family, at six to eight months in the program, I would talk about all the drunkenness for 15 minutes. My daughter would talk for 10 minutes about what happened when the guy came and 12-stepped us, and she was so beat down, all she had left was her God. And then Sue would talk about the steps. And like any gathering where two or more are gathered, God is within the midst. With the three of us, with Papa Bear, Mama Bear, and Baby Bear, there was always one of us in God consciousness. Always. Always one of us was in God consciousness. So when we shared together, uh, there was hope. And people didn't remember what we said, but they saw us come in the same car and they saw us leaving the same car. In spite of what we said, people said, oh, you better not do that. You have, you guys haven't done your complete inventory yet. And, uh, there's going to be some pain. And there was some pain because I was drunk and loaded and, I, and I'd hear my daughter talk about things, but we didn't intentionally try to hurt each other either. And you people loved us enough that we didn't come to this podium we were taught in the very beginning this podium is to share your story not your opinion or engross your idea of what you're supposed to do over everybody else we come here to share our story and it's still true i don't come here to tell you what to do i come here to tell you what i did and we were taught that in the very beginning and uh i remember uh you know, new, brand new, listen to my daughter talk about her God, and she was 12 and a half, 13 years old. And it was like, wow, she really believes in some power greater than herself can help her. Because I had, alcoholism had stripped everything else away from her. And, and here she has a God. A 13 year old, a 13 year old kid, my kid knows more about God and has a better relationship with God with, than me. I'm the alcoholic, I'm supposed to have that. And instead of being angry and jealous, I was amazed. Wow. Wow. And that gave me hope. See? And uh, and then Sue would talk about the steps, and little by little, we'd go through that. So that was 32 and a half years ago that started happening. So Sue and I have been doing this, and Simone, when she got to be 19, she didn't want to share as an Alty anymore. She was an Al-Anon, and so she, the family Split. I mean, Simone wouldn't go talk as an Alateen. She was an Alanon, so we we quit talking as a family. We've done it several times, but she moved to Italy and changed. But Sue and I have been out here on the road doing this stuff for over 30 years, and we've never missed a commitment. We've never been late uh, at a convention because we missed an airplane. There was three years that we talked in every state in the Union, plus Canada and Mexico. It got so bad running around talking that uh, I almost got drunk because that's heady wine. I started believing my own crap. And uh, and Sue and I would go out and talk, and then on, on a Sunday on the way home, we couldn't even talk to each other. 
and we got so tired and sitting on those airplanes and you get neck cranks. And I was working. I had to go to work. She had to go to work. And finally, uh, Jack Sullivan from Louisville, Kentucky, told me, he said, where does it say in the big book you've got to fly for six hours so that you can have one hour of vicarious pleasure at the podium? And uh, and I got some strong old-timer influence to, to uh, pay attention to my family, pay attention to my job. <clears throat> it was it was insane, uh, but uh, it was necessary, I guess, because we're here today, and uh, we've had to moderate and learn to, you know, do things uh, uh, together. One of the things that I enjoy today, after 33 years in the program, I enjoy doing things with my wife. I support Al-Anon. I'm Al-Anon friendly. I support Al-Anon, and when I do things with my wife, it's part of the amends that I do uh, for the Al-Anon, for the non-alcoholic, because I'm very uh, supportive and, and realize the help that people need, plus the fact that uh, Sue and I have a relationship. We've been together 50 years, see, 50 years, and we have a good relationship, and we raised our daughter, and my Daughter has forgiven me for all the terrible things that went on and uh, because she recognized and accepted that I was an alcoholic and that I really wasn't that way when I was, got sober, but it was when I was drunk that I acted the way I did. And uh, so there was change. There was change. Uh, there's little God stories along throughout uh, our program years but that gave me, you know, uh, indications and and uh, points in the road uh, where I could stop and and see uh, when I was uh, uh, sober uh, four or five six years our daughter decided to uh, in there she just wanted to be a model and so she she had a dream and she was all beat down and she started through Alateen held her head up and started doing things and she uh, made a decision she went model around the world and uh, when she's 16 and so she wanted to go to Italy uh, to Milan Italy because that's a fashion capital and she uh, believed there's no spot where God is not and she believed in herself and she she was she took her obsessiveness I don't know whether she's an alcoholic or an addict. She doesn't either. She's never picked up. She was young enough to be able to make that decision. She's never picked up, but she's a very obsessive, compulsive person. And uh, she focused when she was 13 to 16 on wanting to be a model. So she didn't have a boyfriend. She didn't do anything. She focused on being a model and finished her high school, and she focused on being a model. And when she was 16, uh, uh, she brought home a contract to go model in the Orient, and uh, I wouldn't sign it because I knew what them guys are going to do to her out there. You know, I, uh, I'm an alcoholic. I'm afraid. I, I can't distinguish the difference between fear and joy. So she had her mother sign my name, and she went to uh, <clears throat> she went to the Orient and modeled around over there and came home with a portfolio, and then she decided to go to, to Italy and model. And uh, we took her down to the airport. She had all these bags. She couldn't even pull them all. She's, uh, I don't know, what was 18, 17, 18, 19 years old, 19. Well, somewhere. And she was still my little girl, baby, let me tell you. And when that little girl went down to LX and, and had a one-way ticket to, uh, to Milan, Italy, where she couldn't speak Italian, didn't have a manager, didn't have an agent, didn't know nothing, and I took her down there and, uh, and we dropped her off. Why, uh, I knew if there wasn't a God, why, well, I'm in a lot of trouble. And uh, and she waved by and took off. And she went over there and she got sick and it was cold and she didn't know anybody and she didn't know how to speak English or Italian. And, and we didn't know. We couldn't hear. We didn't hear from her for, I don't know, a long time, weeks and weeks. Uh, and unbeknownst to me, uh, she finally uh, reached out for help. She's asked questions and and found out she trying to find an out on me and she couldn't and they finally said well there's an english speaking aa meeting over here and somebody told her where it was and they got a hold of somebody and they came over this room where our daughter was holed up in there with 
of the flu or cold or something and uh, and uh, scared to death, but she reached out to people in the program, and some AAs came and picked her up and took her to a meeting. They, the meeting was, uh, I don't know, 16 people, and it was in a circle, and it was a closed AA meeting, and they brought her there. And uh, they went around the room, and, and she was the last to share, and she said, I know this is a closed AA meeting, uh, and I'm an Al-Anon, and I want to thank you for letting me be here. And they, they weren't so... They weren't so structured. They said, if you can talk program, we'll let you share in here. And she knew how to do it because she came from our family. She knew how to do it at that time. And so she shared in her story a little bit in that meeting. Sitting in that meeting was a young man by the name of Peter who was a, who was a model, a photographer, and he'd come from Los Angeles. And he said to my daughter, your dad's named Keith. And she said, yes. He said, I owe him a favor. And he took our daughter and introduced her to people, introduced her to agents, introduced her to, to models, moved her over to a place, a, a facility where models live, and she uh, uh, went to work. He gave her a set of tapes so she could learn the language, and that was over 20-some years ago, and she's still there. And she worked for many years as a model and was very successful, a ramp model, a ramp model. And that guy came home and told us that she was okay. You see, what had happened a few years, a year or two before she went over there, I was kind of like Marvin here. I was kind of the head sick of a thing like this. And there was a bunch of people came, and Peter came to this get-together. And when he left, he left his organizer underneath a chair. And I picked that up, and, and I opened it up, and my daughter and a newcomer was watching me, and I started to steal his money and his credit card. But... Uh, uh, I had witnesses, so instead I called him and I went uh, to a meeting and gave it back to him. And he said, oh, man, thank you so much. And uh, if there's anything I can ever do for you, please let me know. And I remember thinking, Peter, you can't even take care of your purse. <laughs> you ain't never going to be able to. You ain't never going to be able to help me. But I didn't say it because I was sober. I just thought it. I didn't say it. And here it is four or three, two years later. And Peter sitting in a meeting in Milan, Italy, where my daughter is completely lost. And Peter remembered that commitment to me. And because I had changed enough in the short time I was sober, Simone, our daughter, was she was willing to reach out to people in Alcoholics Anonymous and ask for help. If I hadn't changed, I was still the asshole I'd always been. She would have never reached out to you because she would have figured, you're all a bunch of assholes, you can't help me. But she saw the change in me, and so she reached out to the people in AA in Milan, Italy, they took her to the meeting. There was Peter. Peter helped her. Peter came home and said, she's okay. And uh, and I saw that, and I, wow. See, there really, really is no spot where God is not. And uh, there's many, many stories like that that have happened that uh, gave me hope. Hope is a vision beyond your present circumstances. I don't care what you are or where you are. When I was new, I needed hope. I needed a vision beyond my present circumstances to reach out and grab a hold of. I needed some. I was riddled with fear. I was riddled with anger. I was a very violent uh, alcoholic. I beat a man to death with my bare hands. That's how. That's the goalposts. And uh, when I sobered up, that all changed. I couldn't lash out anymore. And all that went in inward. I'm new sober and all that anger, I stuffed it. Bite your tongue, put your hands in your pockets. You could hear the anger in my voice, but but I couldn't hit anybody and I, I couldn't ventilate anymore. And all that went inside. So here I am, married to this lady, I got this little girl, and I'm stuffing and I'm stuffing and I'm stuffing. And... Uh, well, I have no tools. I'm socially inept. I, I have no tools. A communication was a series of of uh, four-letter words. I, profanity was my native tongue. I, I didn't know how to talk to anybody. I, in the field uh, that I worked in was men off out in the oil fields, and I, I was just uh, I, I was a social leper. I had no, but I'm sober, and so all this this vile 
boisterous, loud, violent human being is just a, I'm a roly-poly man. I sobered up and I'm a roly-poly. I feel like a roly-poly. I, I don't, you hurt my feelings. And I, I cried and I was sensitive. And I, I remember one time Sue asked me, she said, you're not going to wuss out on me, are you? She loved me as a man. And, and here she's working the steps and, and I'm just over here bleeding. I started bleeding. I'll tell you what happens to me. I'm a very physical person. I'm a physical person. And, and when I don't drink and I don't use and I stuff, I bleed. I hemorrhage. I hemorrhage. And about three years sober, three and a half years sober, I was sober. I was sober. You bet your ass I'm sober. Don't ask me to greet. And don't hug me. All these people are hugging me. And I, ah, I get that tingling sensation and question my sexuality. And I'm bleeding, I'm hemorrhaging. I I think the human body has about 13 pints of blood, and I dropped out nine pints of blood in a period of time. I bled. And I got so weak, I couldn't get up. And uh, people uh, in AA saw it happening, and they didn't really realize. I wasn't sitting around in in, uh, meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous talking about bleeding, but it was obvious there was no color in my fingernails, and I, I lost all this weight. Finally, they sent a 911 ambulance over and took me to emergency room, and they uh, put me in there and gave me nine pints of blood. The doctor told Sue, you know, you realize he didn't have enough blood in him, that if he would have sneezed, he'd had brain damage? And she said, how would we have known the difference? <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'd done everything. I'd set up the chairs. I'd done the steps. I'd done the traditions. I'd been in a group rep. I'd been... To, World Service ref, I'd been this, I sponsored people, I'd read the book, I'd, you know, put the plaques on the wall, I'd gone and got idiots and hauled them all over everywhere, and I was just sober. And, uh, and people came to the hospital, and, and I was laying there so weak I couldn't even move, and they would come over there, AA people, and on people, and say, don't die, we love you, asshole, don't die, you know. And I couldn't flip them off, I was too weak. And they love me. They love me. They love me. They love my wife and daughter. They love my wife and daughter. And because they love my wife and daughter, they were compelled to love me. And God has a funny sense of humor. And they literally loved me back to health. And uh, I got up and I, I started going to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous and I started working with others. I started working with others. And it was said last night, you know, just working the steps is just half measures. You gotta get, you gotta listen to the steps from another human being to make full circle. Full circle is necessary. And I'd done the steps and all that stuff, but I hadn't received a fifth step. And once I started receiving a fifth step, uh, I started, the healing started. And I've listened to over a thousand fifth steps. I'm not a priest or some kind of a, I'm not a garbage pail, but I worked with lots and lots of alcoholics. There were like 40, detox units and, and treatment centers around where I live, 20 to 40 bed treatment centers. There was adolescent wards everywhere. Uh, there was a 3,000 AA meetings in the Los Angeles base, including Orange County, where I live. You could go to any kind of meeting you wanted to, sick or not. You could just go to those. So we would go to family meetings. We'd go do things. There was a lot of activity. There was a lot of opportunities to do things. It, uh, where I live, there's 18 million people, so to have a thousand people in a meeting is not unusual. And and they get you busy. And I needed to be busy. And I had a job, and I had a wife, and I, I had a house that was just destroyed. And uh, I had to live in that house for a number of years of sobriety to see uh, enough to see the damage I'd done, and then to get enough self-worth to say, you know what, I'm sober, we need to move out of this and get a better house. And, and sobriety brought me that, and, and uh, through some more God stories, I was able to get the money to get a nicer house. Our daughter was friends of a, a little girl at her high school, and uh, she, uh, we went to look at this house, and here was this guy, and he had, his daughter was there, and his daughter knew my daughter, and he said, you want this house? I said, yeah, but I don't have no money. He said, I'll help you. I don't know why, but I've got the money to help, and my daughter likes your daughter. I'll help you. And they helped us, and we got got out of that old house, the old neighborhood, and uh, 
and started recovery. I had a lot of uh, I had a lot of wreckage from the past. As Sue mentioned, I'd been involved with criminal elements uh, uh, for a long time, part of my lifestyle, and uh, it took a period of time for that to catch up with me. But Sue always allowed me uh, to, to work an AA program and, and have a sponsor. I had a sponsor from the very beginning, and I've always had a sponsor, still have a sponsor. And to me, a sponsor is a tool that I can use, just like the steps, and... Uh, and uh, I try to ask my sponsor what he thinks of what I'm going to do before I do it. That's always been the, ask me before you do it. I'm not a magician. I can't fix it after you've done it. Talk to me about it before you do it. And that's always been the front thing up front uh, to have. And call your sponsor is the three most important words in our home. Even our daughter. You've got to have a sponsor to live here. Call your sponsor. My daughter's had the same sponsor. The same lady's been her sponsor for, I don't know, 20 some, 25, 26 years. When my daughter, when our daughter went from Alateen, she's a little girl all beat down and everything. And uh, she'd been in all the violence in the home, and I brought all kinds of criminal element and crazy dope fiends and gang people to my house and my daughter was afraid. She's like a wounded animal. She'd go hide. And, and uh, so when she went and made the transition, it took her a while in Alateen. When she was 19, 18, 19, she started making the transition into Al-Anon, and she needed to do a fifth step, a fourth and fifth step as an Al-Anon. And she went and did that with a sponsor. She got an Al-Anon sponsor. And she went and did her fourth and fifth step. And she came home, and she said, uh, Dad, I need to make amends to you. She said, yeah, you know, uh, during your drinking, we had a cat, and and we lived uh, where there's uh, three seasons, so there's a cold time of the year, and we had an old gas dryer, and, and our daughter go in. We, everybody had to do their own laundry. Nobody did it, you know, with survival. And she'd go open that dryer where their clothes would be warm. That cat would jump in that dryer, and she'd sp- shut the door and spin that cat. And then she'd open that door, and the cat would jump out and cling to her. It was scared to death, but it'd cling to her, and she'd caress the cat. And, and she, she developed uh, a thought pattern that that cat loved her. That cat was scared to death, but she'd comfort that cat. So in, in the active disease of alcoholism, she developed this thing where, when she felt unloved, unloved, you know, un- unwanted, unloved, and alone, <laughs> the cat went in the dryer. <laughs> she tortured that cat for several years until the cat learned to stay away from the dryer. <laughs> but in her fifth step, she recognized that. Now, let me tell you something. One time I came off of about a 10-day run. I came home, and I blacked out. And my, the only friends my daughter had was she brought, she'd bring these stray dogs out of the neighborhood. She brought a stray dog in, and I came out of a blackout. That dog was laying on her chest, one of those stray dogs, a little cocker spaniel, all matted hair. And I killed that dog. I shot that dog nine times right on my daughter's chest, and Sue was standing five p- feet away. And nobody cried. Nobody showed any emotion. And I took that dead dog and threw it in a trash bag and said, don't you love anything more than you love me? You're supposed to love me. You can't show affection to anything. I'm talking about terrorism. I'm talking about alcoholism. And she hated me for that. And so when she came to the program and started seeing that once I sobered up, I didn't torture animals anymore. Matter of fact, I had to see that I really shouldn't have any because I can't take care of them. She started forgiving me, but when she did that fifth step and saw that she'd tortured that cat, here she is, 19 years old, running around trying to find a man that will hold her like that cat. She's trying to find a relationship that's like that scared cat. Every man she goes, looks for, she's looking for a man that's tortured and scared to death so she can hold and caress. It's sick. She said, Dad, that's sick. I'll never have any kind of a relationship if I look for a man that's like that cat. And you'd shoot the dog, for God's sakes. You never tortured. You, never, you didn't prolong it. I tortured the cat for years. 
And she said, I forgive you. Can you forgive me? And I said, absolutely. We were sick. We don't do that anymore. Don't do that anymore. That was the healing. Don't look at the fact that I killed the dog. Look at the healing. There was healing going on. Healing going on. See? The insanity of alcoholism is not... It's not what I did when I was loaded. Of course I'm crazy. It's how I change. The, the second step is about how I change once I've got clean and sober. Once I've got clean and sober. My daughter uh, uh, changed from a little girl to a woman. And she was, uh, there was never any incest in our home. It was mostly violence. But if I hadn't sobered up, I have no idea what would have happened. And uh, when she started making the transition from a little girl to a woman, she was tall, skinny, big boobs, beautiful. And she brought her girlfriends over, and they'd get in their bikinis and go out in the pool. And I had to leave the house. And, uh, and I didn't let her run in and jump on Daddy and let Daddy cuddle his little girl anymore. And you didn't walk around the house in your underwear. There was changes. There were some morals. See, there was morals. Where they come from, I, I don't know. I think it's just sobriety. I believe that I'm an alcoholic. I believe an alcoholic is a drunk with a conscience. I think there were periods of time when I was drunk that I would see what I was doing, and it was wrong, and I knew it was wrong. I just didn't know that I had a phenomenon of craving that made me do it again and again and again. That was the frustrating uh, dilemma. I don't want to be this way. I don't want to be this way. And uh, I don't know how to stop it. Because I have something in me that makes it necessary for me to do it again and again and again. I became so frustrated that the anger got worse. The violence got worse. And uh, I'm the kind of alcoholic. Uh, I hear all these young guys come in AA and they talk about all their quests and all their love life. Let me tell you, if you drank with me, baby, it wasn't working no more. I was no longer a lover anywhere. And uh, I, that's the last thing that dies in a man. And as, as that died in me, I became more angry. That You ladies can fake it maybe, but boy, if it don't work, we can't fake it. <laughs> and uh, man, that part of me was just uh, made me very angry. I would go places and get hookers and just pay them a bunch of money to make me a man, and they couldn't do it, and I beat them. I was very violent about that. And, uh, and of course, at home, I was a drunk, stinking old drunk. You know, there's a lot of different kinds of Al-Anons, but a real Al-Anon's one that slept with a drunk like me, baby. You come home, and I roll in that bed drunk, stinking, and want to make love, and it can't work, and it don't work, and I get on you because it won't work. Wake up with vomit in the bed. Say, I love you, baby. Please forgive me. <coughs> and uh, many, many times, <coughs> many times, it was ugly and violent because of that. And uh, here I am sober. <coughs> I don't know how to dance. I could dance like an old fool when I was drunk. Dance all night. If I had a little speed in me. <clears throat> and uh, now I'm sober. <clears throat> I don't know how. I was sober a while and, and uh, trying to get my <clears throat> sex relationship back. And uh, my sponsor said... How does it feel to make love to your mother? So what the heck are you talking about? He said, that woman's been your nurse. She's been your lawyer, your bondsman, your cook. Everything but a wife. It's been like a mother. And Sue talked about us going through surrenders there. I, I had to ask my wife. We were going to make love. I said, do you like what I'm doing? She said, no, I've hated it. I said, well, you've let me do it for years, for God's sake. Well, I didn't know what to say. 
I didn't know what made her feel good. I didn't know what to say to her to make her feel good. How about just a little hug? How about a little affection? I didn't know I was a taker. I'm a taker. I'm a taker. I'm a selfish, self-centered alcoholic. I'm a taker. And uh, I had to learn all these things. It It wasn't that my fourth and fifth step was so big a deal. The best thing about my fourth and fifth step was I dropped a lot of lies. There was a lot of stuff that I thought and all this stuff that, I, that dropped off when I did my fifth step. That's the good news. The bad news is what was left was really sick. But it wasn't a surprise to me. And we would do things together. The old timers told me I can't cheat on my wife. I have to stay with my wife as long as she'll let me for the rest of my life if necessary. I don't have a choice. And uh, they were very firm about that. That you've done all this stuff, you've tortured your family, now you're going to make amends. It's the amends step. I was told in the very beginning, you need to make amends here. I said, well, I haven't even worked the first step. I don't care. You need to make amends here. You go home and you shut up. You don't tell her what's wrong with her. I said, if I don't tell her what's wrong with her, who's going to tell her what's wrong with her? Somebody needs to tell her what's wrong with her. And they said, it ain't going to be you. And so I'd just stuff. I'd sit there. They told me my daughter would come home from school and slam the door and come in there, and then she'd want to talk to me about her lessons, and I was mad because she slammed the door. They said, just give her five minutes of undivided attention a day. Start there. And uh, I was a disciplinarian from a distance. See, Sue so was the mom and dad in that home when I was drinking. And I was a disciplinarian from a distance, so I didn't know how to discipline. I had tremendous guilt, tremendous guilt when I sobered up. I got tremendous guilt for the things I did in my home, with my family, much less the people outside. I owed tremendous amount of money. I, I, I'm a mover and a shaker and a candlestick baker, baby, and I tell you what, I owed a lot of money. I had two different groups of people that had a hit on me when I sobered up. I had stolen a quarter million dollars worth of narcotics and got drunk and hid it and forgot where I hid it. So when I sobered up and I was in that detox, I didn't want to leave that detox. I felt safe in there, and I knew they weren't coming in there because it might, they might get infected. So I was safe in there. And when I got out, I go home, and these people find out I'm home. And I got calls saying they're going to break my daughter's leg if I don't do things for them pay him back not a, i'd sit in a meeting of alcoholics and us and some guys whining because he had a flat tire i got people gonna break my daughter's leg i didn't say it in the meeting i didn't say it in the meeting i was scared to death and i stayed sober long enough that the people that that i was involved with in in the organized crime found out i was sober they knew i have certain characteristics that are really good that they could use, and if I'm sober, I'm really good at it. So all of a sudden, they get interested in me. See? And uh, I've got all that coming at me. Uh, when I was new, sitting in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, if I got what I deserve, you better not be sitting next to me because it's going to splatter. And uh, I've got all this going on in my head. I've got all this anger, and I'm bleeding, and I'm trying to do things and uh, they told me to write I'm a product of pencil and paper I had to get rid of it matter of fact I couldn't even get an erection until I sat down and wrote get clear my head if I didn't clear my head I couldn't even I couldn't even perform as a man I learned that is the greatest tool of recovery was to sit down that desk that pencil and paper and get rid of my resentments burn it out throw it away, give it to my sponsor, then I could love my wife. You can't make love to your worst resentment, and there she is. And uh, I had to make amends. At 52 days sober, I remembered where the narcotics was. I was sitting in detox in a meeting, and I go, I know what's that. <laughs> People, what's the matter with you? Huh? Never mind. And, and Sue knew this was going on. She was going down on. She had to release me. She had to let me go. She had to. She couldn't get involved in this anymore. 
And I went and got the stuff and gave it back to the people, and they were glad to get it. And I found out that every good thing in my life is preceded by a wall of fear, and i got to walk through a lot of walls of fear. I have to walk through these walls of fear to get the good on the other side. When I was drinking, I drove fear like a fast car, baby. Some people hunker down in the corner like an old mule. Man, when I got that fear going, I drive it like a fast car. Here, I'm sober, and fear demobilized me. It demobilized me. And uh, I had to get this stuff and give it back to these people and uh, walk away from them. They said, don't call us, we'll call you. I walked away from it. I didn't take a newcomer with me and go flush it and go do all this stuff here. No, I went and gave people something that belonged to them back to them. And I owed about $260,000. And uh, I didn't get to declare bankruptcy or say, I'm an AA. It's all okay. No, my sponsor said, pay them back their money. I said, do you realize how long that's going to take? Don't make a difference one day at a time. And Sue knew how much it was. And our old house was beat up. She started cleaning up the inside of the house and putting uh, wallpaper up and filling in all the holes in the walls and everything. And I'm trying to figure all this stuff out and get the money back. I went and borrowed some money from a kid that I grew up with that had a lot of money. He loaned me some money, made me a deal. Paid the people back, and I started working. It took me 14 years of sobriety to pay that money back with interest. I didn't have an overwhelming good feeling about it at all. <laughs> I mean, it's one thing to drive up out here in the new Mercedes and say I was in a blackout and bought that car, ha, ha, ha. But 250000 bucks I owed in a lot of different facets of life, and I had nothing to show for it. Nothing. They couldn't even brag about it because people didn't believe it. You can't possibly be that. Oh, yeah, I can. And uh, I started paying it back. It took me 14 years of sobriety to pay that back. And, and the reason I share that is simply because uh, by the time I paid it back and worked and worked sober, 14 years sober, I was making a lot more money than I would have been if I'd have been able to slough off the debt. I, I raised myself up to a level of income and 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 uh, uh, profession to work to make the money to pay the debt and still take care of my family. Sue worked and she helped, but she never made any of my amends payments. Thank you very much. That's your problem. You pay it. I'll take care of the, me and the kid, and and I made the house payment and we did things. But she did it all. She set the pace. The woman sets the pace in the home. The woman sets the pace in the home. And. Uh, her and the daughter worked a program and allowed me to do these things. And I paid this money back, and I was making good enough money that we could start living a good life. And uh, we gradually changed. We gradually changed. We fell in love. We came here. We thought we were in love, and we were in heat. And, and then we just became crime partners. Through my dream, we became crime partners. She was a designated driver. She could drive the getaway car. If people owed me money and they were in a bar, I'd send her in the front door to get the money, and I'd wait around the back with a two-before, knock the guy out, and take my money. And so we were a team. We were like the Bonnie and Clyde out there, and everywhere we went, people feared us both. We were a team of sick, sick, crazy people, and we, we had crazy people. Guys that come over to my house, because they didn't want to go home and fight with their wife, so they come over and watch me fight with mine. She had a 12-inch butcher knife she kept within reach all the time, 24-7, and I had a 45 automatic with a rounded chamber, safety off, and the hammer back laying on the nightstand. For 15 years, we slept like that, and the, those weapons weren't for people outside of the house. And our daughter was in that. Now, I hear a lot of people, and I, I won't debate it, but I'll tell you this. A lot of people say, oh, I damaged my child and all that. Well, our, our child was damaged. She had many reasons to hate me forever. But she went to Alatine. She started prying the steps of Alatine, which are basically the same. 
Even though she was 12 and a half, 13, she didn't really know what she was doing. She was young enough to be intimidated. We intimidated her. You've got to do this. You don't have a choice. And she did it, and she got better. She accepted I'm an alcoholic. And I'm going to tell you something. My daughter has lived in Italy for over 20 years. She was a ramp model. She ramped, she modeled all over the world, and nobody ever took advantage of her. She could kick their ass. My daughter got tough from that. She used her character defects of living in our home to be tough and take care of herself, self-supporting through her own contribution. There was places she'd go in foreign countries when these people, gangs and what have you, would come upon her. She'd take her high-heeled shoe off and whack them upside the head. She learned that from her mother. She's she's strong woman, a good woman. She's not a violent woman, but put in the right situation, she'd take care of herself because she was in boot camp. One time she was in Italy and she needed a meeting. I don't know a meeting. The only ones that had a good meeting out of the NATO base, a NATO base over in uh, part of the area there. But she had to ride a train about an hour and a half. So she'd get a couple of newcomers, and they'd get on the train, and they'd ride this train over to this NATO base where they had a good Al-Anon meeting. And on the train was a bunch of military people from all over the world. And one night she was coming back from the Al-Anon meeting, her and a couple of little newcomers, and there was a bunch of jarheads from America on the train. Jarheads. Hammerheads. Talking crap about the girls. And they were talking in English, and they thought these girls were Italian. They didn't know that Simone could understand them. And she listened to it, and then she took her shoe off and whacked them upside the head. What are you doing? You're supposed to be Marines. You're a disgrace to your uniform the way you're talking. And they were surprised as hell because they thought she couldn't understand them. She understood everything. said, you need to straighten up. You like, like, like a jerk. <laughs> Don't mess with her. When you see her on a train, leave her alone. She's a very loving, a very good mother, a very good wife. She married an Italian. I'm telling you, you're going to marry an Italian. You better be, you better keep him uh, in a bedroom or he's gone. And she does good with that. She's kept herself up. And I've been over there many times. I go over, Sue and I go over, and we get to go to the Bertolotos, uh, the in-laws, and they go to their house, and they're old, old Italian people, very wealthy people. And I go over and I get an audience with them and I just say, thank you for taking care of my little girl as if she were your daughter. And they say, thank you, don't worry. And then I get out of their life. But I've sat and watched my son-in-law with his children. I watched my son-in-law uh, with his wife. And I tell you, the, the, the greatest reward of that is that I don't have to worry about how my son-in-law treats his wife. I don't have to worry about how my son-in-law treats his children. He's a good man, a good man. And I've been in his home, and I've watched this many times. He's a good man. And even though they live halfway around the world and we don't see them very often, I don't have to worry about them. And I'll tell you something. When Simone went over there and went to Al-Anon, and got it going, she met this guy, and he don't know anything about it. He's not an alcoholic. He doesn't understand it. And he said, why do you have to go to all these meetings? And she said, I just need to. She said, don't make me choose or you'll lose. <laughs> and he's never made her choose. He doesn't always like it. He, he's, uh, got it. he doesn't understand it, but he's been in my home. He came over from Italy, and he's a very wealthy young man came over from Italy the first time, and he came to our house. Our daughter brought him to our house. <clears throat> I was standing in the kitchen. I had a Rolex watch on. Prosperity had come along, and I was sober long enough to get some flash. And uh, I had this Rolex watch on, and he's looking at it. He's looking at my watch. I noticed him looking at it. He had a little fanny pack on, you know, and he said to my daughter, he talked Italian, and my daughter needed to know how much I wanted for that watch. And I didn't, I don't know what I said. I, it was probably a fair market value, but it was a little more than what I paid for it, I'm sure, because I just don't say things that are less. And he took his fanny pack out and had American money and bought that watch off my hand. And I sold it to him. And I thought, you know what? I'll never have to worry about my daughter. He, he impressed the hell out of me right there. 
and she's never wired home for money because that guy's a proud guy, and he takes care of his family. Takes care of his family. Sue and I have gone over there, and we've done many things uh, in the program over there, Sue. So our daughter started a, a woman's retreat and all kinds of program things, and she has a bunch of newcomer girls over there and working with them all the time. We've been over there, gone to meetings. We've flown into Nice, France, and gone to meetings over there, what have you. Not that we're doing anything, but we've been a part of that community. And so what I'm here to tell you is that there's been healing in our family. I don't know where you are on your road or whatever, but we come from the pit of epitome of the pit of violence and anger and terrorism and uh, and just insanity. And we've come up out of that darkness. We've come up out of that darkness to a healthy family. So and our buddies, we get along. We, we've been retired for 10 years, and we do a lot of things. We're active. She does her program. I do mine. She has her friends. I have mine. She falls in love with me when she sees me working with a newcomer and, she, and giving of my time. Uh, she's not my sponsor, and I'm not hers, thank God. Uh, but we both have sponsors, and, and it uh, is a very important uh, tool of our recovery. Uh, our home is a program home. We have things around on the wall that are program things. Anybody comes in our home while they see these things, they, we're not ashamed of the fact that we're in the program. Matter of fact, uh, the cops haven't been to my house in a long, long time. It's been a long time since I've walked down the street at a 45-degree angle. And I'm grateful for the little things. I'm grateful the holes in my nose are turned down because they turned up and it rained, I drowned. You know, little things like that I'm grateful for, you know. <laughs> we have friends. Sue and I have people that we've sponsored, relationships with people that we saw new that we sponsored for over 20, 30 years. Long-lasting relationships with people in the program that we've sponsored, that we've nurtured, that we've helped stand up, clean up, grow up. It's not just a relationship that her and I have. It's a relationship we've had with sponsors. We've gone through a lot of things. What did your sponsor say? Well, I don't know. What did your sponsor say? I'll tell you what my sponsor said if you'll tell me what your sponsor said. You know, those games and what have you. And when she changed sponsors, I didn't have to. I thought there for a while, if she changed sponsors, I had to. I didn't have to. And uh, <laughs> we've had... I remember one time... Uh, we must have had our 25th wedding anniversary. We're in the program. We had a lot of young people around us, and they were coupling up and all this stuff. And we had our 25th wedding anniversary, and these all these young people in A and Alan got together, and they they went down. And we didn't have anything. We had used furniture, used house, used car, and they they got us a cheap. It was German silver, but a cheap silver service, a platter and, a, you know, two pots and a couple of things, a cheap, but it was a silver service, 25-year anniversary. And so we were going to have a date, and we're going to dinner, and then we're going to go home, and we're going to bed. And so these young people came over to our house after we got home, and they watched the lights go out and counted to 50, and then they watched the lights go back on. You know, we were done. And there was a knock at the door, and we went to the door, and here's a hundred young people. And they got this big box, and they come in the house. And uh, we had a house, had a staircase, and, and they lined up all around us, and we opened this box, and here's this silver service. And we set this silver service down, and Sue and I are standing there. And I remember standing there looking at all these young people's eyes. And I, I, I wasn't sober long enough to have a lot of self-worth. I knew. But I'm looking in these young people's eyes, and, and they're looking at us like, and they wanted us to say something. And Sue talked, thank you and thank you. And I remember looking at their in their eyes and saying, wow, I, I don't have anything. But I knew if I'd cheated on her since I sobered up, I, the guilt would kill me standing there with those kids looking at us. If I knew if I'd cheated on her, the guilt would kill me. And standing there, I was just grateful that I hadn't cheated on her, that I hadn't beat her, 
that hadn't done these things in sobriety. And, and I just said, thank you. The next day I went to my sponsor and I said, you know, all these young people in the program came and they looked at us in that silver service and everything, and I didn't know what to say. My sponsor said, you don't need to say anything. Do you realize you are what they want to be? You are what they want to be. I didn't know that. I didn't, I didn't understand that I was a good example. That I was a good example. And uh, what a beginning. What a beginning to be a good example. I'm my best when I'm with you. I'm my best when I have a newcomer with me so that I don't act like a jerk. I'm my best when I'm with my family. I'm my best when I'm with you. And that's why I love you. Thank you.